Hi there, you're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, interview episode, Globalization in the Ancient Mediterranean and Indian Ocean with Dr. Serena Atiero. everyone. Joining us on the show today is Dr. Serena Atiero, a research associate of the Center for Religious Studies and Digitization of Gandharan Artifacts Project at the Ruhr Universität Bochum. A PhD graduate of the University of Rome, Dr. Atiero is an expert in South Asian art and archaeology, focusing extensively on transcultural contacts across Eurasia. Past papers of hers include best figurines from Roman Egypt as agents of transculturation in the Indian Ocean, And today, she is here to discuss her work on globalization in the ancient Mediterranean and western Indian Ocean. First off, let me just say thank you very much for setting aside your evening to appear on the podcast. Thank you, Derek, for having me here. It's a pleasure and a honor for me to join your podcast. Now, would you care to give us a brief insight into your background and what led you to focusing on the relationship between South Asia and the Mediterranean? Well, I know I should probably focus on my academic background after your question, but there are a number of variables in our personal life that actually end up shaping our professional profile. And in my case, let's say my origin story strictly relate to the place I I had the luck to be born in, because I'm from a small town, let's say more or less between Naples in southern Italy and Pompeii. I think you all know Pompeii. So I was raised in a, like an archaeological oriented mind. And in Naples, there's one of the best universities of Asian studies in all of Europe. So further luck was that when I graduated high school, the university just inaugurated a BA in Asian archaeological heritage. So I just jumped in it and said, OK, let's follow some classes there and see how it goes. And I realized that that was my path in life. So usually when someone asked me the question you asked me, I replied that it was destiny that led me to my study and to what I do now. More seriously, the point is that my alma mater gave me a wide choice of classes. It was almost natural for me trying to bridge at one point the, na- the knowledge I acquired in different fields, uh, from Indology to the classics, Near Eastern studies. Because I really think that it's important to explore during formative years different topics and also to avoid early hyper-specialization, that it's something that sometimes happens when you start studying uh, in university. Because then we have time to specialize on different topics. So in short, eventually I got my BA in archaeological heritage and then my MA in archaeology, both focusing on South Asia. But at the same time, I had this chance to have classes in classics, uh, ancient Near East. And so I was able to to bring this baggage of notions into my PhD uh, that was on the cultural exchange in the Western Indian Ocean in a context of like it was a school of Near Eastern studies. So it's just looking around and then bridging together all this knowledge I was exposed to. For many, the term globalization feels more relevant in an age of mass connectivity through the internet or transnational commercial enterprises. What do we exactly mean when we speak of globalization, and how can it play a role in our assessment of the ancient world? Does it fall into the same general grouping as ideas like Hellenization, Romanization, or Sinization? 
the notion of globalization was born and was shaped on the contemporary world. Usually we date this phenomenon to the early 80s, more or less. However, in the last decades of study, several scholars felt that globalization theories cannot be relegated to the world we live in today, but they could offer a kind of good set of lenses to look into the past. Globalization helps us understand the past through the cultural transformation it ignites. Because at first, we could be tempted to try and evaluate globalization in the past in a kind of quantitative way. So aiming at transferring the question whether there was globalization or not, the level of globalization there was at, at a certain type and place. While more recent approaches make clear that there is no particular scale for ancient globalization, there's not a kind of threshold we need to identify in order to use globalization thinking to understand ancient societies. One very peculiar thing is that ancient globalization does not need to be global. I know this is a quite disorienting statement. And it derives from several studies in the past that led to the consideration that ancient globalization is mainly identified as a cultural phenomenon more than from an economic or political point of view. An history of globalization is not necessarily macro history. And this is especially true for those focusing on the past and on the pre-modern world in general. Globalization refers to complex connectivities. There is a kind of a formula that refers to lasting and meaningful links between societies and people across space, let's say a significant distance. As historians and archaeologists, we have tried and we try to demonstrate and we believe that this phenomena uh, extend well back into human history. And despite such form of connectivity derives from let's say, an apparently non-necessary enterprise, they play an important role in terms of shaping and giving meaning to the world in which our ancestors live, in shaping their habits, behavior, patterns of consumption, technologies. The general term to use is culture, but we need to be aware that culture includes a lot of things, a lot of many different things. It's not just studying something or reading a book. That is a very limited view of culture. Globalization is born from reasoning that are related to those leading to ideas of Hellenization, Romanization, or Sinicization, but more than falling into the same groupings as those concepts, globalization actually offers a more unbiased alternative because these ideas imply a kind of reasoning that is usually called cultural influence. Cultural influence is a concept that is judgmental and creates a hierarchy between a superior, stronger culture exerting a form of power on a weaker, passive one. So when we say Romanization, we are talking from the point of view of Romans bringing something somewhere else. My own approach to globalization studies started with the study of the so-called Indo-Roman trade, but what I saw uh, coming from South Asian studies mostly was a profound Rome-centric bias that was heavily affecting the scholarship on the topic. Globalization allows us to go beyond such biases. 
For example, concepts such as Hellenization and Romanization are based on derogatory assumption. And they have recently been criticized also by scholars coming from the classic world and are in the process of being always highly problematized in favor of a, a better understanding that is more nuanced and that can give a better view on such profound interactions. Because as I already said, uh, mostly for globalization, we intend complex connectivities that create cultural transformation, if we want to be really, really brief. At the time of my release of this episode, listeners of the show will be fully immersed into the period of Greco-Bactria and the Indo-Greek kingdoms. But for those that may be unfamiliar, what is the historical context or time frame for when we talk about globalization between the ancient Mediterranean and Indian worlds? When did it reach its peak? Well, this can be embarrassing because this is the Hellenistic Age podcast, and I am here to say that the peak of trade between the Mediterranean world and India was reached after the annexation of Egypt by the Roman Empire. So let's say this as first thing. In general, demarcating a time frame for analysis is a real challenge. And when we look at different areas of the world, different regions, and uh, a wide time span, uh, this is, is even more a challenge. One of the reasons for this is that complex connectivities we look at vary in time and space and globalization involving Mediterranean and South Asia covers and includes very diverse, um, very diverse regions. The level of geographic integration, the intensity of such integration, the volume and impact of such exchange, all are not fixed figures, so are difficult to quantify. We also need to consider and we need to always keep in mind that the temporal borders we might find and uh, put in action to give borders to our studies are always in part arbitrary, always permeable and variable. But we can identify a broad period that goes more or less from the 4th century BCE up to the 7th century CE as a temporal unit of analysis for this that we can call a facet of the ancient globalization, as we want to distinguish it from like other examples like Bronze Age globalization or medieval globalization. Those centuries, and are a lot we indicate here, have been defined following different criteria for the beginning and the end. Those centuries, I say the 4th, 3rd century BCE, that are indicated as a starting point of this period are those that witnessed a growing of connectivity and exchange. Uh, we see, for example, in Southern Arabia, but also in the Red Sea with the, um, with the Ptolemies, we start to have ports on the Red Sea. While if we look at the end of this period that we are trying to define, they correspond, the, the moment I identified it is the 7th century, more or less, corresponds to the rise of Islam in the West, but also to a series of political changes in the East, like, for example, the collapse of the Gupta Empire in India, the rise of the Tang in China. This in particular, so the, the end, is a particularly arbitrary limit because there is no such a stark separation with the golden age of globalization that will characterize the Islamic period to come, for example. 
But let's say we can identify a similar pattern and limit our research to this Y time frame. In this Y period, we can also see fluctuating patterns of participation and involvement according to different regions and the different polities involved in this phenomenon. If we have to take the Western point of view, we can clearly see an high in the first, second century, that is during the early Roman Empire. Such boost has been fostered uh, by the inclusion of Egypt in the, in the empire and Roman control of the right seaports. Of course, there are precedents to these developments uh, already in the Ptolemaic period, but with the integration of the Mediterranean into the Roman Empire, the connection becomes more capillary and direct. One thing that we need to keep in mind is that defining the higher globalization, looking at the Mediterranean world, does not mean that the rest of the world followed or depended on what was happening in the Mediterranean. If we look at the map, the Mediterranean is practically a periphery of the ancient world. There are always complex shifts in connectivity between different regions. When we see a low from the Western point of view, like in the third century, other areas uh, were actually in full development and their involvement in Indian Ocean trade was growing, like for the Sasanian Empire or the rise of the Himyarit in Southern Arabia, of the Aksum Kingdom in what is now Ethiopia and Eritrea. It's always important to look at the map and really consider that uh, we cannot look at the Mediterranean as the focal point of all the things that are happening in this part of the world, in this, in this wide but quite specific period. standout examples of cross-cultural exchange between the Greco-Roman and Indian traditions, namely the Buddhist art of Gandhara, for example. But how do scholars exactly measure the quote-unquote level of globalization, for lack of a better word? What sort of documentation do we have, literary or otherwise, that allows us to better understand the connections of trade and exchange in the Western Indian Ocean during this period? Globalization, since it was born as a concept for uh, the economists and for evaluation of the, the economics of the contemporary world, it was something measurable with numbers and very precise data. Of course, this is not possible when dealing with history, mostly because the sources we have are accidental, uneven, incomplete, and often biased. I already mentioned, for example, a Rome-centric, a Rome-centric bias on the study of the Western Indian Ocean. This is mostly due to the abundance of written sources from the Greco-Roman world, plus also the fact that the archaeological tradition is older, so consequently there is a striking abundance of findings available and already studied if compared to other areas of the world. South Asia is just one example of this, but Southern Arabia works well the same. To see globalization happen, scholars need to look at the effects it might have on the sociocultural level. Only looking at the dislocation of goods is not enough. 
only reading sources is not enough because most of the sources were also commissioned by political power. So they are, of course, parts of propaganda and they are biased in this way. But scholars of the ancient world so try to identify a kind of characteristics that allow us to see globalization happen in the past. And this can be done looking at the effects that it might have on society and culture. Uh, there is in particular one model that I want to mention that has been well received by archaeologists and historians and has been elaborated by Justin Jennings that lists eight hallmarks of globalization. I can read them from my notes here. These hallmarks are time-space compression, deterritorialization, standardization, unevenness, cultural homogenization, cultural heterogeneity, re-embedding of local culture and vulnerability. Some of these hallmark words in contrast to one in the other, showing how complicated are the cultural phenomenon spreading from uh, globalization. But these eight characteristics don't need to be present at exactly at the same time, at the same moment, in the same place. They can be pervasive at different scales and allow ample variability. So there's a lot of variability in evaluating ancient globalization that appears as a recurring phenomenon in the history of humanity, but modality and scales depend on the precise moment we're looking at. Accepting this view means also acknowledging that ancient history and also history in general has a significance to the contemporary world. We don't need all of these hallmark to happen at the same time but they can give a good indication of what we need to look at when analyzing a context that shows signs of long-distance interaction and see if, if actually we can use globalization to look at it. Because the aim of us as scholars is not just evaluating whether or not globalization was happening at a precise time and space. That would be, in my personal opinion, a kind of quite sterile exercise. But our interest is to see if in the context of long-distance connection, there are specific cultural transformation in a new society, in a new human group that are related to the awareness of living in a wider world. Focusing on the Western Indian Ocean, we have a huge range of sources of different natures, written sources of different types, literature, epigraphy, papyri, ostraca. In several languages, just think that only for my PhD, I read sources in Greek, Latin, Sanskrit, classic Tamil, and South Arabian, and that was not all. And then we have archaeological sources. We can look at material culture, pottery, terracotta figurines, finds of, and finds of the most diverse types. I can mention, for example, the peppercorns that have been found. Peppercorns are for India, and they've been found at Bernike in Egypt, one of the Red Sea ports of Egypt. And then we have a type of sources, I focused on quite extensively on, the, on those, that we can call iconographic or art historical, because looking at visual production around the Indian Ocean Rim, we can see signs, an echo that can be more or less explicit, of transregional contact. One of the better known examples this, of this kind of phenomenon is the art of Gandhara that we mentioned. But for example, there are also Indian elements in the barely known arts of Southern Arabia, 
that uh, had been identified. There's a paper I wrote in 2019 on this topic and one other that is forthcoming next year. Carrying over from my previous question, are there any key materials in your research that you have been able to utilize to track the movement and spread of ideas, perhaps in ways that are more subtle? Studying ancient interconnections, as I say, goes beyond the simple track and trace of foreign artifacts around the world. Identifying an object far away from its place of origin can give indeed just an indication that there was a kind of long-distance connection, but it's definitely not enough to talk about globalization. But there are, however, some materials witnessing cultural transformations, clearly indicating a more profound interaction. I work a lot with Indian terracotta figurines, for example. Uh, This class of material is particularly sensible to what we may call fashions, trends, change of taste. In general, it is quite common in ancient societies to see some classes of terracotta figurines being quite stable in style during the centuries, while other types undergo frequent and more profound modifications. It's not possible to make a generalization on the reasons why this happened, but looking at a specific context, we can try some conclusions. I will discuss my context of election. That is an area in southwestern India, now comprising to the state of Maharashtra, uh, that is the state where it's located Mumbai. In that area, there were known ports trading with the West, and several urban sites, also more inland, but still involved in the Indian Ocean Trade Network. All of these ports and cities are mentioned, for example, in the parables of the Eritrean Sea. There is this important sailor handbook from the first century describing the route from Indian, uh, from Roman Egypt to Southeast Asia, describing a lot of ports around the rim of the Western Indian Ocean. As for the time frame, we are talking in India of the Satavana period, in particular the early centuries of the Common Era. In this area, there are traces of contacts with the Roman West, as I already mentioned, classic sources like the Periplus mentioning this area and also the city of Tagara, nowadays known as Ter. This city was excavated in the 60s. Among the finds, mostly unpublished or hidden in local museum deposits, there are many terracottas, including a class that has been recognized and labeled as Hellenistic. These terracottas are Hellenistic, uh, first of all, for the production technique, that is the double mold, uh, and there are few doubts that this technique was originally developed in the West. Also, the material seems to try and imitate Kaolin figurines from the Hellenistic West. And also, the iconographies show some Western echoes, but uh, they definitely are not copies and are not separated from their local context and their meaning is strictly related to local culture. Moreover, there are no signs of original imports. There are are no original Western terracottas identified so far. We know that finds are accidental, so everything can happen any moment. Among these terracottas, there are female figurines depicted in a very peculiar position. They have their legs spread out, showing the genitalia. On the male side, we have stocky figurines, like chubby dwarvish figures. These figurines that show some very interesting iconographic parallels in the West, 
in particular, respectively, the female figurines looks like figurines of Baubo, that is one of the characters narrated in the Yerusinian mysteries, and figurines of, and the image, the iconography of the Egyptian best. But despite these parallels, if we would not know about the West, we would not have any difficulty in placing and interpreting these figurines only remaining in the Indian context. Because the female figurine with open legs showing the genitalia is a figure widespread in Indian iconography, usually is called Yoninilaya, that is the goddess embodying the female genitals, while the male figurines are just a variation in the depiction of minor deities called Yakshas that reflect a local nature of cult and are widespread in the iconography of India, both in Buddhist iconography and in Brahmanic iconography. So my conclusion was that in urban context, in the heyday of Indo-Roman trade, foreign styles were utilized to represent local deities, creating a new visual culture that is what we define at Transculture, so a new culture, transcultural in nature, bore by the different uh, inputs of globalization. And besides anthropomorphic figurines, there is also a class of terracotta lamps derived that shows some knowledge of Western styles, but it's extremely local in nature and there are no precise parallels in the West. In very simple words, I would say that the awareness of the other cause new styles and trend to develop also in a very local context and for very local practices like the use and creation of terracotta figurines or the use and creation of terracotta lamps that are something uh, deeply local for Indian culture. I just want to add one more thing, an additional note, because this is mostly a research in progress, but unfortunately it's it's more of a research in standby at the moment. There are actually some terracottas, terracotta figurines, that have been found in Roman Memphis in Egypt. They have been found in 1903 or something like that. And they were labeled at that time as Indian in style. But also in this case, the subject and the materials used are local. For example, they represent Arpocrates, but in a position that is called Tribanga, that is a typical pose in Indian icono- seen in Indian iconography. Are those Indian, Egyptian? Actually, concepts related to globalization, such as localization or transculturality, can actually help us understanding this phenomenon leading to such particular and peculiar visual solutions. I really hope that in the future I can further study and be able to say more about these figurines from Egypt, these figurines from Roman Memphis. Speaking of terracotta figurines, uh, Dr. Stephanie Langan-Hooper's recent book, Figurines in Hellenistic Babylonia, discusses the complexities of labeling aspects of art or material culture as explicitly Greek or Mesopotamian during the Hellenistic period, especially when we have examples that seemingly pick and choose those elements to present. But with regards to Indo-Mediterranean trade, can we more easily delineate motifs as being Greco-Roman or South Asian, or are there instances that blur the line? 
Well, in part, I think I already answered this question with my uh, previous discussion about terracotta figurines, because I personally think that in some context, chasing the label that is most suitable to be stuck on an object is actually an operation that makes no sense. Using globalization theories in seeing the creation of new visual languages where the separate elements not only blend or more tradition, but simply create a new one. There are few questions that I used to ask myself. For example, how long an element needs to be used to become local? How we know if it is used with the awareness of being taken from somewhere else? If the manufacturer is not aware of an element being of foreign origin, can we comfortably talk of it as being foreign in origin? This question clearly applies also to the study of the terracotta figurines I mentioned. And the answers mostly depend on the context and how we want to relate to the object uh, we are studying. If we think at how we recognize foreign elements in an object, an artifact, an iconography, there's a big problem with the way we look at the object. Because I'm aware, and it has been a process that took a while, that whatever production I look at, I come from my Italian and European culture, and I started studying Western art history and Greco-Roman architecture. I think in primary school, they already start teaching us these things. It's very easy for us to recognize those elements around the world. It's much more difficult to identify elements from cultures we don't belong to. So before trying to delineate uh, the motives and put a label on them, we need to really go deeper into the knowledge of the different contexts that might be involved. This is not to say that one needs to be a kind of a polymath or know it all to study objects from a context of interaction, but I think it's important to always challenge our first impression and our way of looking at things. When we find objects in their natural cultural habitat, we can usually determine maybe how they were used or valued with some level of clarity. When we find them in areas we don't expect, it becomes less obvious. Do you know of any instances where visual motifs or items from one region acquire a whole new context when placed in another? When something like finding an object out of their natural cultural habitat happens, usually this is something I used to make fun of archaeologists about, and I'm an archaeologist. We used to say to put it into the realm of sacred and label it as ritual. And this is a thing that happened, for example, with a very peculiar object that is an Indian ivory statuette found in Pompeii, and that is actually Indian. There are recent studies and recent reassessments on the topic, but very briefly, we can say that the statuette was found in Pompeii. So it is clearly dated to before 79 when Mount Vesuvius erupted and buried Pompeii. And it has been treated always as an isolated find. 
immediately it was assigned to a kind of sacred, as a realm of the sacred. While now um, we are sure that it was mostly part of a um, maybe small cabinet or small table, kind of an everyday object, and the figure depicted was just a, a decorative female figure nothing to do with the goddess Lakshmi and uh, if you go to the museum it is stored the label still say uh, Lakshmi but what we can hypothesize now is that if we go to the old finds connected to the statework maybe we will find more indication of what was happening because an isolated object tell us about yeah okay there was a kind of interconnection but something happened in the context at that time, it was impossible for the archaeologists to look at what was happening from, let's say, a global point of view, because there was a very scarce knowledge of the archaeologists, the archaeology outside of the classic world. The statuette was excavated in 1938, so most of India was not known, nothing was known. If we want to remain in the context of uh, Indo-Roman trade, I also have another interesting example of change of destination of use of an, of an item. And this is what happened with coins, with Roman coins in India. Because many Roman coins found in India have a hole pierced through. And this hole is usually put at the, above the head of the emperor depicted on the, on the coin. And this observation obviously suggests that the whole was intentional and made not just to collect coins together, but to hang them as a decoration, as a jewel, we must, we must say. In India, there are several examples of coins used as jewels. They were uh, charged with a kind of apotropaic power Moreover, in India, they have also been found imitations of coins, of Roman coins, made of terracotta. So it's a kind of a cheaper version. So practically, and very briefly, I hope I don't make any mistake with summarizing this that much. Roman coins in India uh, were used as jewelry, as decoration. And using coins as jewelry is not so unseen as I think. But in the case of Roman coins in India, they were probably used not only for their value as jewels. Indeed, they also cheaper imitation were used in the, in the same way, but for their uh, some kind of invisible value they might have, probably as lucky charms so or with apotropaic power. And one of the reasons why this probably happened is that the face, the iconography of the Roman emperors, uh, large nose, uh, large eyes, sometimes wavy hair, create a kind of scary image uh, with the power to scare off evil. That is also the reason why probably some characteristic of the Egyptian best were adopted for terracottas representing yakshas. It's all part of the same phenomenon. So yes, we have example of object repurposed and reinterpreted in another context. I believe that this is a great place to conclude our discussion, and I'd just like to say thank you once again for taking the time to share your work with my listeners. But before we go, are there any projects you're currently working on or any sort of links you would like to share for my audience? I would invite your audience to look at our project that is the DIGA project. It is a project that I joined earlier this year at the University of Bochum. 
And DIGA is a short for digitization of Gandhara artifact. As the name says, it's a project aiming at digitizing Gandhara collection that will result basically in a database based on linked open data methodologies. We are now in the process of creating control vocabularies for this project and building up the structure following the current standard in digital humanities, thanks to, because this project is partly for us South Asian specialists and part from the digital humanities side. And my colleagues, two of my colleagues already went to Pakistan last month to document almost 700 sculptures from the collection of the Dir Museum in Chakdara. The aim of the project is to digitize the whole collection, so uh, adding up to about 2,000 pieces in total. Digitization is seen not just as a mechanical practice, but digitization is a way to bring the collection out of storage. Digitization is a fundamental step to ignite further research on debated topics such as the art of Gandhara. Moreover, digitization also facilitates a kind of repatriation of knowledge. Digitization of collections that are not easy to reach helps building new perception of Gandhara and of the peculiar artistic school that was developed in Gandhara. Gandhara is seen from the West. As I said, we have those biased lenses that make us look at it and see it as much more Westerner than it actually is, mostly because of the colonial history of his discovery and the colonial history of the main collection we have and to which we know it. The DIGA project already opened up uh, new exciting avenues of research on this kind of issue, and I'm looking forward to start and to share uh, what we are working on. Beside this project, it is my main work now. Another project that I still have in progress is the one of the, on the cultural exchange on the Western Indian Ocean that will appear as a book in one year or so. That will be an occasion to probably put an end to this part of the study, but it's actually extremely difficult to decide where that research must end. It's almost 15 years that is going on now. I have to just find a way to arbitrarily say, okay, let's get it done now. Of course. Uh, my intention is to keep working on the Indian Ocean, despite putting an end to the book. Uh, I have a lot of ideas in mind, especially trying to bridge Gandharan studies and Indian Ocean studies that are my two main interests. I try to talk about these topics and uh, to share my research in my Twitter account that is Archaeoglobal. And especially with this DIGA project we have in process, I think we, are, we will accomplish also very nice things on the interconnection between West and East in the past. I will be including all of these links in the podcast description and the episode notes on my website, including access to Dr. Atiero's previous papers. But for now, thank you all so much for joining us today. And you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast. <laughs>